It's Tuesday, February 28th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm going to name my daughter Mohila. The baby names are always changing. Maverick and Legend for the boys. For the girls, Mirabelle's up 500 spots thanks to Encanto. This year, I expect to see a rise in Mohila. What's Mohila? Let James Campbell, arguing at the Supreme Court today, explain. Missouri has the right to vindicate the harms to Mohila. Mohila is a state-created and state-controlled public instrumentality that performs the essential public function of providing financial aid to Missouri students. How beautiful, right? Okay, you still need to hear more? So Mohila stands for Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. They give the loans, and not just to Missourians. The Biden administration canceled the loans, or wants to, up to $10,000 worth. But then the state sued, including Missouri and Nebraska. James Campbell is their lawyer. And the reason it's so important to talk about the beautiful and lovely Mohila is the question, is the forgiveness program constitutional? It'll all come down to Mohila. So, Justice Alito asked, If, uh... Mohila itself had brought this suit. Would you contest uh, Article 3 standing? Mohila bring a lawsuit, but Mohila is just a baby. No, Mohila is not a baby. That's a parallel universe I invented. Mohila really is the entire case. See, the six conservative justices are very skeptical of the student loan forgiveness program, and they are itching to disallow it. But they need someone to be harmed. The Supreme Court doesn't just rule good law, bad law. It needs someone or something like a state to come before the court and say, we've been harmed. We've suffered damages. That's called having standing. The state of Missouri says we have standing because Mohila now doesn't get to service these loans that have been forgiven. And therefore, some of the money that they would kick back to the state won't be kicked back. Therefore, people in Missouri are harmed. Counter argument. Eh. Maybe Mohila won't be able to kick back that amount of money, but it could kick back some other money. and It's got a lot of money. Mohila hasn't given money to the state's general fund for 15 years. Plus, Mohila is its own entity with 10 little fingers and 10 little toes and a cute little nose. And I think we're going to enroll her in a Montessori school. But no, Mohila is not a baby. Mohila is the state, goes the other side of the argument. Mohila is not the state, it's an incorporated entity, goes the argument put forward by U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger. This is not the first lawsuit uh, that Mohila has been involved in. Actually, Mohila is not involved in this particular suit. But in prior suits, when Mohila has been sued, the state's been entirely absent because state law makes clear that Missouri cannot be on the hook for Mohila's liabilities. Whoa, little Mohila is getting out there in the world, doing a few lawsuits behind mommy and daddy's back. Again, the argument is, if Mohila is its own entity, Missouri is not harmed. Mohila's harm, not Missouri's harm. And then... Missouri has no standing, and then there is no lawsuit blocking loan forgiveness. It did seem to me that the standing argument broke down exactly as the ultimate argument will. All three of the Democratic-appointed justices offered arguments suggesting Mohila wasn't part of Missouri. All six conservative justices offered arguments tying Mohila to Missouri. And most analysts agree that if Mohila gives the states standing to sue, then the states will be able to prove harm, and then student loan forgiveness as a scheme will be disallowed. It's not for sure. It's not even the only lawsuit on the case. There is another one called Board of Education versus Brown. Seriously, we had a row reversal last year. 
This literally reverses Brown v. Board of Education, of course, in name only, but also maybe as far as the idea of equal access to education under the law. You can say, of course, it's unequal. It's based on who can afford it. Yes, yes, I know. Brown isn't about affording tuition. And in this case, there are a lot more complex issues. And also, if we argue a lot about it, we might wake up little Mohila, who is so adorable when she sleeps like a little angel, like a loan servicing angel with $854 million in FFELP loans, representing 45,611 accounts. Sleep well, baby Mohila. Justice Alito has a series of challenging hypotheticals for you when you wake up. On the show today, the experiential threshold. But first... Carol Anderson is a professor of black history at Emory University. I went there. As well as being the author of several books about the intersection of history and race. Okay, that's where we diverge. Her latest book is titled The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, which is coming out in paperback this week. And Carol Anderson is on the show right now. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, and the Emory Connection would, of course, qualify her to be on the gist in my eyes. But she is also the author of White Rage, which was a New York Times bestseller and winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. And she also wrote One Person, No Vote, which is an authoritative look into voting rights in the United States. Her latest book, now available in paperback, is The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Welcome to The Gist, Professor Anderson. Ah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I knew a lot. I knew a lot about guns and the Second Amendment around the Constitution and the debate that went into it. What I didn't know, and I think my listeners might not know as much, is the phrase in the Second Amendment about militias and what our founding fathers, especially Madison, thought about militias and why militias are so entwined with the Second Amendment. Can you start there? I think it's a fascinating place to start. Absolutely. Um, so we have several things. So one, we're dealing with the kind of of imaginaries that militias are in today's society. We think of them as these stalwart defenses against the British. Uh, they were there, they were taking on the British, and that's why we've got to have these militias. Well, actually, those militias during the War for Independence Sometimes they would show up, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they'd fight, sometimes they'd take off running. Right. George Washington was beside himself about how unreliable the militias were. And so when Madison was writing the Constitution, drafting the Constitution, he put control of the militias under the federal government as a way to begin to standardize their training. Well... For the South, the militias were integral to controlling the enslaved, 
to putting down slave revolts for keeping the enslaved in check so that they would know their place. Right. Um, and, and to interrupt, and they actually were reliable on that score, unlike serving Washington in the revolution. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They were very reliable when it came to putting down slave revolts and keeping the enslaved in check. And so, and so when the, the, the ratification conventions are happening in the states, when we get to Virginia, Patrick Henry, Mr. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, right. and George Mason were beside themselves that the control of the militia was not under the state control, but under the federal control. Patrick Henry said, you know, we can't trust those folks in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania to send the militia down when our slaves rise up against us. George Mason said, we will be left defenseless. Mm -hmm. Patrick Henry said, those folks in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, they hate slavery. So how can we expect them to protect us when our slaves come after us? And so they threatened to basically scuttle the Constitution. And when they couldn't scuttle the Constitution, they put enough pressure on Madison to say, you got to put some a Bill of Rights in there. Uh, because if we don't get protection, we're going to hold another constitutional convention. And Madison's thinking about all of his hard work in moving the U.S. from this unworkable Articles of Confederation to a constitution that had a much stronger central government. And and so and so, you know, South Carolina was the most radical state. And like a lot of times with these negotiations, therefore, they have the most power. They're the most willing to walk away and blow the whole thing up. Um, but I guess my question with this is, and we could get to all the different um, amendments that were offered and where Madison thought the Second Amendment or gun rights ranked, which wasn't particularly highly or he didn't really care about it at all. But why were the militias, which has an aspect, of course, we're talking about guns and firearms, but why was that so intertwined with the private gun ownership right? How did we get to that? How we got to the private gun ownership right was really um, an artifice of the NRA and a, and a marketing campaign by the NRA. Yeah. The, the, the Second Amendment has been about the militia um, and the militia in terms of its ability to control and control black people and to protect the white community. That's what the 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 Second Amendment is about. Yeah. And so you get the 1792 uh, Uniform Militia Act, and it says every able-bodied white male between the ages of 18 and 45 must join the militia and must have a gun. So that kind of protection, again, of the white community is on white males who must have a gun. And it's not to protect themselves, it's to protect the broader community. Right. And as you denote, uh, denying gun ownership to black Americans or black enslaved Americans was so important to the South that they'd rather lose the revolution and take their chances with the English than arm their slaves. Whereas, you know, Massachusetts and other states made different calculations. Right. So there's this moment in the war where the British are kicking some USDA grade A prime beef butt. <laughs> and, and Now, to be fair, and, you're a historian that uh, that that federal bureaucracy had not been established yet. But I know what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And 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 it 
And when the war started, the colonies all had banned uh, free blacks from being able to, to bear arms. Some had, had joined anyway, but they had basically banned the, the free blacks from joining the Continental Army. Well, after the British were just kicking butt, then uh, you started seeing the northern states going, okay, and we're not getting enough white men to volunteer mm-hmm. for the army. Right. And so and so the thought of taking on the, the most powerful military force in the world and you don't have enough bodies. And so they started saying, okay, we will grant freedom to the enslaved men who fight for us because Lord Dunsmore had promised freedom for the enslaved black men who fought for the British. Right. And, 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 and Benjamin Franklin's like, they're turning our Negroes against us. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Um, and so you started seeing this movement to, to arm the enslaved to get the, to, for them to get their freedom. And so that the colonies would have enough um, manpower to take on the British. Well, when they hit the, after a while, the British looked and said, okay, let's hit the soft underbelly. Let's hit the South. Right. Savannah's ripe for the taking all these ports that they don't have enough people to defend it. Let's go for that. Smart military decision. Absolutely. And so they took Savannah. Boom. General Howe didn't know what hit him. He's like, well, what happened? Well, what? you know, almost like Scooby-Doo. You know, what, what happened here? Um, and so now they're headed to Charleston. George Washington sends his emissary down to South Carolina. And he says, look, you don't have enough white men to take on the 8,000 force that's coming from the British. You must arm the enslaved. And the South Carolina government said, excuse me? Mm -hmm. They were horrified. And they said, you know what? We'd rather take our chances with the British. We'd rather take our chances with the king than arm, (laughs) arm the enslaved. And so, you know, you begin to think about that, how deeply embedded that is, that that fear of arming black folk says that we would rather take our chances with the king who sees us as traitors than to arm the enslaved to fight for our freedom. And so as a historian, it was fascinating for me tracing this through the laws and seeing how those laws from the 1600s and the 1700s eddy through to today from the ways that that black people are framed as violent, inherently criminal. And one of the most fascinating studies about this is they looked at where slave ownership was in different counties in the United States, and they correlated that to gun ownership. And the correlation was extremely high. Basically, it was an extremely strong predictor of would there be private gun ownership, how much private gun ownership, and even the definition of why we need guns. Yes. I mean, Jim Grossman, who was the president of the American Historical Association, says, Everything has a history. Mm -hmm. When you begin looking at this history of the Second Amendment and you see the role of slavery in crafting this Second Amendment, what it was designed to do, and then you you eddy it through, you carry it through till today, and you begin to see how how entrenched the fear of Black people really is. And you begin to see that gun ownership is aligned with that. So in the study that says 
for whites who are like strong gun owners, the language of of the Second Amendment of, of freedom um, that is assigned to whites. The language of gun control they assign to black people. Mm. So you mentioned uh, the NRA, which was founded by Union Civil War generals who thought our marksmanship wasn't that strong, and they <laughs> yes. and they uh, play a part in this. Um, well, it's not necessarily they; it's what they became. And again, an anti-blackness informed the transformation of the NRA. Could you talk about that a little? Yes. So the NRA basically started off as a a, a, a hunting club, you know. Let me teach you how to shoot because these 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 Union soldiers were just so beside themselves at the poor quality of marksmanship that they had seen in the Civil War. And it had stayed that path for a long time. Every now and then it would pop up like in the 1930s when there was legislation dealing with banning machine guns from private ownership uh, to deal with the gangsters, right? Uh, but basically it has stayed quiet. And then it became started getting really politicized when the Black Panthers came to the fore. And the Black Panthers came to the fore because of the massive police brutality that was raining down on the Black community and that there was no entity in government that would deal with it. So the Panthers said, okay, we're going to police the police. And so the Panthers knew what the laws were in California. They knew what kinds of guns they could carry. They knew what kinds, how to, how, how, how to carry those guns. They knew how far they had to stay away from the police while the police were arresting folks or, or interrogating folks. They knew all of those laws. And so when the police would roll up on top of them to, to try to arrest them, the Panthers weren't breaking any laws, but the police hate being policed. They hated the Panthers standing there uh, watching them arrest a black person. So they went to the the uh, California Assemblyman Don Mulford and said, look, we need the Panthers are a problem. We need to turn what they are doing to make that illegal, because right now it's legal. Every time we stop them, we can't arrest them. Mm -hmm. We need to make them illegal. And Mulford, working with the NRA, wrote the legislation that banned the kinds of, of, of banned the ways that the Panthers were carrying guns. And so that made what had been legal, illegal. And the NRA was was knee deep in that. And so that was in the late 1960s. And you really begin to see the full transformation of the NRA in the 1970s. Right. And so, so much of your book, and I hate to skip over the early part of the 20th century, which was also eye-opening about, you know, the U.S. federal government bringing in machine guns used in World War One to gun down uh, protesters in Arkansas, and just more strains of how uh, gun rights in America necessarily meant gun rights for white and whites and lack of gun rights for blacks. So, we are skipping a little bit, but there is a 
strain of thought that I find credible that says, you know, there is not a constitution. There's the 1791 constitution and the 1868 constitution. And with the incorporation of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, this is the first time America really becomes a true democracy. So the first time, so what you're talking about with the Black Panthers in the late 60s was at this moment of America, at least on paper, fully realizing the democracy we know today. And still, Still, there is an anti-blackness in how we interpret uh, the Second Amendment. And so to me, it's like this is all part of history, but this is a part of our modern history where the rest of that is a little bit different and a little bit more removed and certainly informs our modern history. But this is really important because this is the sort of um, the impetus for disallowing the Black Panthers to really be armed is still alive today, right? Oh, absolutely. And so what I do in the last half of the book is I really look at our modern era Mm -hmm. and I see how the things that we think of as being just hardcore Second Amendment rights, uh, like open carry in those open carry states, um, like stand your ground, um, um, like the right to Mm self-defense, how those three key pillars just are eviscerated when it comes to black folk. Um, And so I use these kinds of case studies where you have um, Catherine Johnston, who was a 92 year old grandmother here in Atlanta. And she hears in the middle of the night, the burglar bars being removed from her home. And she's afraid. You know, if you're 92 and you're in your home alone and you hear the burglar bars being removed. In in not a great neighborhood in Atlanta. Yep. Yep. In not a great neighborhood in Atlanta, you're afraid. She gets her, what they said, her rusty revolver. And so as the folks are coming through the door, she shoots. She gets like one bullet off and it turned out to be the cops Mm -hmm. and they laid her out. They just opened up on her. Um, And the ruling was, (laughs) the initial ruling was that you know, she fired at them. So yeah. she didn't have the right to self-defense. Um, it turned out that they had lied in order to get this no-knock warrant to come into her home. They had lied on it. But the initial ruling was that, that she didn't have the right to self-defense. Here is my, I, I'm not going to say problem, but when I read the chapters in your book that were about history, the Stories were about the United States uh, sending its forces to violently oppress and suppress black people. And you don't need, you didn't need to rely on anecdotes. This was a clear history and there were no cases of violently sending forces to slaughter white people in that form. Sure, Sacco and Vanzetti and a couple of anarchists were the Haymarket riots, but it just wasn't equivalent. Whereas now and today, um, the Breonna Taylor story is horrible. And many of these other stories that you bring to light are horrible. And of course, race inflects what was going on. But if you look at, and I know you have done this, if you look at the statistics about how many white people are killed in America who are unarmed by police and how many black people to this day, although white people are four or five times as as prevalent in the population, there's still more white people who are being killed. There are still more white people who are being killed, even in no-knock warrants. There actually are still more white children who are victims of uh, shootouts where they're hostages. So I do wonder if you can, you can, 
talk about these anecdotal cases and they're true and you have to acknowledge racism, but I do wonder if that tells most of the story that it's anti-blackness driving this as opposed to something like uh, laws that do not hold the police accountable or procedures that allow the police to pretty much run roughshod on all sorts of people's rights. Yeah. And so part of what you, what we look at there then is why do we have these laws that hold the police unaccountable? Um, what, what's been the impetus for this? When we think about crime, when you think about the ways that politicians uh, talk about rampant crime, violent crime, think about the images that they use in order to define that. Think about the ways that that when they talk about all of these cities burning, you know, they're talking about black folks. Mm -hmm. They're talking about, they, they use BLM as this, this kind of cover for uh, violent black folk burning up cities. They, it's where we have the cityhood movement here in Atlanta, where you have these, these pockets of white communities that are trying to secede from the city of Atlanta, and they're talking about all of that crime in Atlanta. It is the same way that Rudy Giuliani talked about the Black women who were criminals, like passing in the um, State Farm Arena, passing out um, ballots in USB right. ports like they were drug when, dealers. Like when it was passing... actually a peppermint, yes. Right, right. I mean, yeah. so, so the issue of crime is associated with blackness. Mm -hmm. Think about Lee Atwater's um, soliloquy on the Southern strategy. And he said, you know, in 1954, you could say the N word. By 1968, you can't, it hurts you, it backfires. And so you start getting really abstract, talking about these things like states' rights and forced busing. He said, but the whole point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Mm -hmm. It's not that whites don't get hurt, is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And the whites who get hurt, that's the kind of collateral damage that allows these policies to, to, to fly under the racist radar. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that even in states with like very small black populations, you know, Maine and Montana, police still have immunity, and that's a relic largely or maybe mostly a relic of racism that we want to extend our anti-black policies in places where it's really felt, you know, places like Tennessee and Mississippi. And therefore, if, but if the consequence of that is that places like Massachusetts and Maine and Montana also have, you know, no qualified immunity, and it's also almost impossible to convict a police officer after a shooting, so be it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and there's also uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, Loaded, that deals with the indigenous population and the Second Amendment. And so we're both looking at the role of racism and the role of white supremacy in, in crafting this incredible amendment. And when you think about this amendment in the Bill of Rights, so when Madison is drafting it, you end up with... Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of association, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, the right to a speedy jury trial, the right to not have to deal with cruel and unusual punishment. And then you get the right to a well-regulated militia. I mean, that is just such an outlier 
in this bill of rights, in this initial bill of rights, that it 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 causes you to go, what the heck was going on here? Yeah, yeah. right. The rest stem from these enlightenment principles, these abstract thoughts about the meaning of man. And then there's the musket. Right. Last question. <laughs> I've been listening to this interview and a couple times you used a phrase I hadn't heard before. Did you say Eddie it through? Eddie, yes. Is that like a, a whirlpool, a swirling whirlpool? <laughs> yeah. Is this what it means? I've not heard that before. To Eddie is a is to course through. Okay. Yes. Yes. E D D Y. E D D Y. Yes. I'm gonna. I love it. So <laughs> I was gonna say, if nothing else, that was very instructive. But the whole thing has been instructive, and I thank you for this, Carol Anderson, African American Studies professor at Emory and author of the second Racing Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thank you for eddying it through. With us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And now the spiel. Let me start by telling you about the Kennedy compound. John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane crashed, and it was my first assignment. I rented a car. I drove to Long Island, where he took off. I interviewed some people there. I hopped on a ferry, found myself in Hyannisport at the Kennedy compound. You've heard the phrase. You know the place. But what does Kennedy compound conjure? For me, it was something big, sprawling, tall, fortress-like. I expected walls and gates and guards. What I got was houses, a bunch of not particularly large houses. I'm sure in terms of value, beachfront property, very expensive, but they didn't look all that different from any other medium-sized white painted houses, green trim. There were just a lot of them clustered together. There was a difference between my understanding of the facts of the Kennedy compound when regarding it at a remove and when understanding it firsthand when experiencing it. I wasn't invited inside. I never even went on what would be considered the grounds. We journalists were cordoned off across the street, but I was experiencing it. To go from one to another, to transport from understanding or knowing of something to having contact with or inside a thing, I call that crossing the experiential threshold. Looking back, compounding my imagination of the compound was the word compound, the alliteration, and the fact that the Kennedys, though actual humans who lived in the 20th century, to me were historical figures. Jack and Bobby both died before I was born, and therefore never part of my living memory. Now it's been said there are two types of events, and only two, the remembered and the historical, and it is hard for us to realize that the events of one's own lifetime are to a younger person in the realm of the historical. I mean, it's easy to know that as a fact, to understand, oh, you're 22. You weren't alive when 9-11 happened. We all understand how ages work. Okay, we get that. But what it means as an experience to a 22-year-old, or even say a 24-year-old who is too young to form memories of 9-11. So for them, it's in the same mental file as Pearl Harbor or the Civil War. It's simply labeled the past. So for instance how this works out with a 22 or 24-year-old you might know or have heard of. Jalen Hurts rushes for all those touchdowns in the Super Bowl, but realize if you asked him about 9-11, he'd be retrieving from the same memory place as he stores the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, it's the same with me in the fall of Saigon or my dad and Pearl Harbor. There's what we remember, and then there's history, and the difference is stark. And just like a past live-through is different from a past 
learned of, so too is a phenomenon studied, even studied deeply, and one that's seen and felt and that you're immersed in. And I don't even mean immersed as in every fiber of your being gets to know it. I just mean if you glance up from a text or if you disconnect your headphones, the experience stops. If not, you are in an immersion of the experience and there is a big difference between knowing of and being immersed in the experience. The difference between having known about something, even known a lot, and having experienced something is vast. This isn't to say that lived experience conquers all or conveys the ultimate expertise, but just a different kind of relationship. It's a different kind of relationship to the truth and to the facts of a situation once you cross that experiential threshold. So I'm going to get to what I'm going through personally uh, in my own life right now. But first, a little bit about me professionally. I crossed the experiential threshold a lot of times as a reporter because my job was to go to a scene and to translate the experience to you, the public. So you could, in a way, through me, a person who crossed the experiential threshold, get a greater understanding of what things were really like. Sometimes the difference between my perceptions of events before and after crossing the experiential threshold did not change that much. It was mostly the case with the high-profile sporting events I went to, Super Bowls and World Series and Final Fours. They're meant to be televised spectacles. I wasn't too surprised or thrown by the raw elements. Teams about to play in a national college basketball championship aren't that different from what I'd expected having read about them or watched them on television. I wasn't shocked by the reality of having experienced them preparing or even playing. Some phenomena are really different. A low stakes one was the Kennedy compound. A higher stakes one was New Orleans after Katrina. Some of the images on TV match my own experiences, sometimes because I was standing next to the videographers who were bringing you the footage of floods and desperate people awaiting rescue. So that's why they were similar. But a lot was different. The inescapable slosh underfoot, the ghost town, stuck in amber quality of parts of town, like uptown, the intimation behind the signs declaring we'll shoot looters. Many of the gun owners expressed this not in anger nor in sadness, but in confirmation of a time they were sure would come. So this is possibly interesting. It's possibly not. But it gets me to something that I and my family have been experiencing the last few weeks. So as I've mentioned on the show, we have a family who fled the war in Ukraine, the Danushkins. They're from Ukraine. They're living with us in the United States. Thanks to your donations of more than $20,000, they're in line to get housing here in New York, very expensive city. They should get housing. Should. I know from living in New York, reading about the housing market, to some extent experiencing parts of it around my price point, knowing that things were ridiculous. I am not naive as to the New York housing situation. I do not dispute the phrase housing crisis. But to live inside of it from a situation of a lot more desperation as I have through the Deniushkins is really different. For instance, Section 8 vouchers. Have you heard of Section 8 housing vouchers? I've heard of them, but I didn't hear accurate things or I didn't really understand them. You know, they haven't been given out since 2009. Landlords, I know, I read about this on the front page of the Times a day or a week ago. Uh, Landlords don't like them and they can't reject them, but they still do reject them. So I kind of expected, well, I'll find out about them, but I don't expect much. It will be frustrating. Now, they basically don't exist. There were some authorized for emergency use during the pandemic. That's all gone. 
We, in fact, are, would have been better off not knowing they existed because for all intents and purposes, they don't exist. I also know that apartments aren't really their asking price. They say 2500 but you need first months, last month, security, maybe broker's fee. Okay, price that in in a $2,500 apartment, which is what this family of four is looking at, comes out to something like $3,000. This is below the average price of an apartment and certainly below the average price of a two-bedroom apartment, but it's what they can afford and they will live there. But they can't really afford it because even if the price is $3,000 and they could swing that, you also need a credit history, which refugees don't have. You need pay stubs reflecting 40 times earnings. So your guy's a master electrician. He has been getting work. He will get work. He will be able to support his family once he's established. He will not be able to show a pay stub reflecting $100,000 a year. Lottery programs rely on minimum incomes that the Deniushkins don't have. There are great refugee assistant programs. They'll tell you, we'll help with food. We'll help with clothing. We'll help with jobs. We won't help with housing. We can offer you a spot in a shelter. Housing, they just can't crack. So we're trying to help them crack it. We're living through it. We're experiencing it. Going from, we're going to aid a refugee family. Okay, check. We're going to house them for a month. Check. We'll raise funds. Well, actually, you did that. Thank you. And check. Help with jobs, schooling, housing. Check. Check. (laughs) Near impossibility. So what do we do? Do we just give up? Tell them, you know what? Go back to the war zone. I had no illusions about the ease of any of this. And like I said, if you asked me about the housing market, I would have said very tough. But I also would have said, well, the finances are such that they can afford rent of some kind with a bit of wiggle room. And therefore, I think they should be able to get an apartment. Again, should. Doesn't mean can or would. So because we've raised funds, we have the ability to pay a few months prepaid, which isn't technically even allowed these days, but also income will be coming in. But of course, landlords are very hesitant to rent because the housing laws in New York are such that once you do rent an apartment, all the power turns to the renters. And so there's a lot of vetting and a lot of 40 times income on the way in. If anyone knows anything about New York City apartments out there, uh, has any tips or lines to good situations, knows any landlords, knows a sublet situation or a building that needs a super, which Sergey can do as a master electrician. All of that would be great. But barring that, we are in a bind. The State Department tells hosts that they're here to facilitate helping our new neighbors, integrating them into society. The implication being that this is not an impossible task. And I am hoping it's not. The experiential threshold has been jarring in this case, however. It's a little overwhelming. And to be fair, mostly to Michelle and not to me. I know, getting refugees settled in the most expensive city in the world, what did you expect? I will admit, not quite this. But again, thank you for everyone for all that you have done and given. We have a few more days where they will be with us. We have space for them for a little more than a week. We're looking for places. I will keep you updated on any Dex Machinas or just any lucky breaks from the apartment gods. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions, reluctant housing specialist. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, thanks for listening and everything. You have to stop, Mirabel! <laughs> <laughs>